Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. It's been a while since we've done an Ambrose Bierce story, and we have a good one for you today. As many of you Ambrose Bierce fans know, Bierce served in the Civil War in the Union's 9th Indiana Regiment, gaining newspaper attention during the First Battle of Philippi for his daring rescue under fire of a gravely wounded comrade at the Battle of Rich Mountain. He is considered one of the only major authors of the Civil War genre to have first-hand knowledge as a soldier. He suffered a head injury in 1864 at the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain, taking a furlough, then later leaving the Army. He was commissioned lieutenant for the Army in San Francisco, where he remained for many years, eventually becoming famous as a contributor and editor for a number of local newspapers and periodicals. In 1913, during the Mexican Revolutionary War, Bierce traveled to Mexico to gain first-hand experience of the conflict. He disappeared without a trace while traveling with rebel troops. It's rumored that he might have been killed by the rebel Pancho Villa early in 1914, although this is purely speculative and remains as one of literature's great unsolved mysteries. And now our story, Four Days in Dixie, by Ambrose Bierce. During a part of the month of October, 1864, the Federal and Confederate armies of Sherman and Hood, respectively, having performed a surprising and resultless series of marches and countermarches since the fall of Atlanta, confronted each other along the separating line of the Coosa River in the vicinity of Galesville, Alabama. Here, for several days, they remained at rest. At least most of the infantry and artillery did. What the cavalry was doing... Nobody but itself ever knew or greatly cared. It was an interregnum of expectancy between two regimes of activity. I was on the staff of Colonel McConnell, who commanded an infantry brigade in the absence of its regular commander. McConnell was a good man, but he did not keep a very tight rein upon the half-dozen restless and reckless young fellows who, for his sins, constituted his military family. In most matters, we followed the trend of our desires, which commonly ran in the direction of adventure, and it didn't greatly matter what kind. In pursuance of this policy of escapades, one bright Sunday morning, Lieutenant Cobb, an aide-de-camp, and I, mounted and set out to seek our fortunes, as the storybooks have it. Striking into a road of which we knew nothing except that it led toward the river, we followed it for a mile or such a matter, when we found our advance interrupted by a considerable creek, which we must ford or go back. We consulted a moment, and then rode at it as hard as we could, possibly in the belief that a high momentum would act as it does in the instance of a skater passing over thin ice. Cobb was fortunate enough to get across comparatively dry, but his hapless companion was utterly submerged. The disaster was all the greater for my having on a resplendent new uniform, of which I'd been pardonably vain. Ah, what a gorgeous new uniform it never was again. A half hour devoted to wringing my clothing and dry charging my revolver, and we were away. A brisk canter of a half hour under the arches of the trees brought us to the river, where it was our ill luck to find a boat and three soldiers of our brigade. These men had been for several hours concealed in the brush, patiently watching the opposite bank in the amiable hope of getting a shot at some unwary confederate, but they'd seen nobody. For a great distance up and down the stream on the other side, and for at least a mile back from it, extended cornfields. 
Beyond the cornfields, on slightly higher ground, was a thin forest, with breaks here and there in its continuity, denoting plantations, probably. No houses were in sight, and no camps. We knew that it was the enemy's ground, but whether his forces were disposed along the slightly higher country bordering the bottomlands, or at strategic points miles back, as ours were, we knew no more than the least curious private in our army. In any case, the river line would naturally be picketed or patrolled. But the charm of the unknown was upon us. The mysterious exerted its old-time fascination, beckoning to us from that silent shore so peaceful and dreamy in the beauty of a quiet Sunday morning. The temptation was strong, and we fell. The soldiers were as eager for the hazard as we, and readily volunteered for the madman's enterprise. Concealing our horses in a canebrake, we unmoored the boat and rowed across unmolested. Arrived at a kind of a landing on the other side, our first care was so to secure the boat under the bank as to favor a hasty re-embarking in case we should be so unfortunate as to incur the natural consequences of our act. Then, following an old road through the ranks of standing corn, we moved in force upon the Confederate position, five strong, with an armament of three Springfield rifles and two Colt's revolvers. We had not the further advantage of music and banners. One thing favored the expedition, giving it an apparent assurance of success. It was well officered, an officer to each man and a half. After marching about a mile, we came into a neck of woods and crossed an intersecting road which showed no wheel tracks, but was rich in hoof prints. We observed them and kept right on about our business, whatever that may have been. A few hundred yards farther brought us to a plantation bordering our road upon the right. The fields, as was the southern fashion at that period of the war, were uncultivated and overgrown with brambles. A large white house stood at some little distance from the road. We saw women and children and a few negroes there. On our left ran the thin forest, pervious to cavalry. Directly ahead, an ascent in the road formed a crest beyond which we could see nothing. On this crest suddenly appeared two horsemen in gray, sharply outlined against the sky, men and animals looking gigantic. At the same instant, a jingling and tramping were audible behind us, and turning in that direction, I saw a score of mounted men moving forward at a trot. In the meantime, the giants on the crest had multiplied surprisingly. Our invasion of the Gulf states had apparently failed. There was lively work in the next few seconds. The shots were thick and fast, and uncommonly loud. None, I think, from our side. Cobb was on the extreme left of our advance, I on the right, about two paces apart. He instantly dived into the wood. The three men and I climbed across the fence somehow and struck out across the field, actuated, doubtless, by an intelligent forethought. Men on horseback could not immediately follow. Passing near the house, now swarming like a hive of bees, we made for a swamp two or three hundred yards away, where I concealed myself in a jungle, the others continuing, as a defeated commander would put it, to fall back. In my cover, where I lay panting like a hare, I could hear a deal of shouting and hard riding and an occasional shot. I heard someone calling dogs, and the thought of bloodhounds added its fine suggestiveness to the other fancies appropriate to the occasion. 
finding myself unpursued after the lapse of what seemed an hour, though it was probably a few minutes, I cautiously sought a place where, still concealed, I could obtain a view of the field of glory. The only enemy in sight was a group of horsemen on a hill a quarter of a mile away. Toward this group, a woman was running, followed by the eyes of everybody about the house. I thought she had discovered my hiding place and was going to give me away. Taking to my hands and knees, I crept as rapidly as possible among the clumps of brambles directly back toward the point in the road where we had met the enemy and failed to make him ours. There I dragged myself into a patch of briars within ten feet of the road, where I lay undiscovered during the remainder of the day, listening to a variety of disparaging remarks upon Yankee valor, to dispiriting declarations of intention conditional on my capture, as members of the opposition passed and repassed and paused in the road to discuss the morning's events. In this way I learned that the three privates had been headed off and caught within ten minutes. Their destination would naturally be Andersonville. What further became of them, God knows. Their captors passed the day making a careful canvas of the swamp for me. We'll return to our show right after these messages from our sponsors. And now, back to our show. When night had fallen, I cautiously left my place of concealment, dodged across the road into the woods, and made for the river through the mile of corn. Such corn! It towered above me like a forest, shutting out all the starlight except what came from directly overhead. Many of the ears were a yard out of reach. One who has never seen an Alabama river-bottom cornfield has not exhausted nature's surprises, nor will he know what solitude is until he explores one on a moonless night. I came at last to the riverbank with its fringe of trees and willows and canes. My intention was to swim across, but the current was swift, the water forbiddingly dark and cold. A mist obscured the other bank. I could not, indeed, see the water more than a few yards out. It was a hazardous and horrible undertaking, and I gave it up, following cautiously along the bank in search of the spot where we had moved the boat. True, it was hardly likely that the landing was now unguarded, or, if so, that the boat was still there. Cobb had undoubtedly made for it, having an even more urgent need than I. But hope springs eternal in the human breast, and there was a chance that he had been killed before reaching it. I came at last into the road that we had taken and consumed half the night in cautiously approaching the landing, pistol in hand and heart in mouth. The boat was gone. I continued my journey along the stream in search of another. My clothing was still damp from my morning bath. My teeth rattled with cold, but I kept on along the stream until I reached the limit of the cornfields and entered a dense wood. Through this, I groped my way, inch by inch, when, suddenly emerging from a thicket into a space slightly more open, I came upon a smoldering campfire surrounded by prostrate figures of men, upon one of whom I'd almost trodden. A sentinel, who ought to have been shot, sat by the embers, his carbine across his lap, his chin upon his breast. Just beyond was a group of unsaddled horses. The men were asleep. The sentinel was asleep. The horses were asleep. There was something indescribably uncanny about it all. For a moment I believed them all lifeless, and O'Hara's familiar line, the bivouac of the dead, quoted itself in my consciousness. 
The emotion that I felt was that inspired by a sense of the supernatural, of the actual and imminent peril of my position. I had no thought. When at last it occurred to me, I felt it as a welcome relief, and stepping silently back into the shadow, retraced my course without having awakened a soul. The vividness with which I can now recall that scene is to me one of the marvels of memory. Getting my bearings again with some difficulty, I now made a wide detour to the left in the hope of passing around this outpost and striking the river beyond. In this mad attempt, I ran upon a more vigilant sentinel posted in the heart of a thicket who fired at me without challenging. To a soldier, an unexpected shot ringing out at dead of night is fraught with an awful significance. At the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain in the previous June, I had been badly wounded in the head and for three months was incapacitated for service. In truth, I had done no actual duty since, being then, as for many years afterward, subject to fits of fainting, sometimes without assignable immediate cause, but mostly when suffering from exposure, excitement, or excessive fatigue. This combination of them all had broken me down, most opportunely, it would seem. When I regained my consciousness, the sun was high, I was still giddy and half-blind. To have taken to the water would have been madness. I must have a raft. Exploring my island, I found a pen of slender logs, an old structure without roof or rafters, built for what purpose, I do not know. Several of these logs I managed with patient toil to detach and convey to the water, where I floated them, lashing them together with vines. Just before sunset, my raft was complete, and freighted with my outer clothing, boots, and pistol. Having shipped the last article, I returned into the break, seeking something from which to improvise a paddle. While peering about, I heard a sharp metallic click, the cocking of a rifle. I was a prisoner. The history of this great disaster to the Union arms is brief and simple. A Confederate home guard, hearing something going on upon the island, rode across concealed his horse, and still hunted me. And reader, when you are help up in the same way, may it be by as fine a fellow. He not only spared my life, but even overlooked a feeble and ungrateful after-attempt upon his own, the particulars of which I shall not relate, merely exacting my word of honor that I would not again try to escape while in his custody. Escape? I couldn't have escaped a newborn babe. At my captor's house that evening there was a reception, attended by the elite of the whole vicinity. A Yankee officer, in full fig, minus only the boots, which could not be got on to his swollen feet, was something worth seeing, and those who came to scoff remained to stare. What most entertained them, I think, was my eating, an entertainment that was prolonged to a late hour. They were a trifle disappointed by the absence of horns, hoof, and tail, but I bore their chagrin with good-natured fortitude. Among my visitors was a charming young woman from the plantation where we had met the foe the day before, the same lady whom I suspected of an intention to reveal my hiding place. She had had no such design. She had run over to the group of horsemen to learn if her father had been hurt. By whom, I should like to know. No restraint was put upon me, my captor even left me with the women and children and went off for instructions as to what disposition he could make of me. Altogether, the reception was a pronounced success. 
though it is to be regretted that the guest of the evening had the incivility to fall dead asleep in the midst of the festivities, and was put to bed by sympathetic and, he has reason to believe, fair hands. The next morning I was started off to the rear in custody of two mounted men, heavily armed. They had another prisoner, picked up in some raid beyond the river. He was a most offensive brute, a foreigner of some mongrel sort, with just sufficient command of our tongue to show that he could not control his own. We traveled all day, meeting occasional small bodies of cavalrymen, by whom, with one exception, a Texan officer, I was civilly treated. My guards said, however, that if we should chance to meet Jeff Gatewood, he would probably take me from them and hang me to the nearest tree. And once or twice, hearing horsemen approach, they directed me to stand aside, concealed in the brush, one of them remaining nearby to keep an eye on me, the other going forward with my fellow prisoner, for whose neck they seemed to have less tenderness, and whom I heartily wished well hanged. Jeff Gatewood was a guerrilla chief of local notoriety, who was a greater terror to his friends than to his other foes. My guards related almost incredible tales of his cruelties and infamies. By their account, it was into his camp that I'd blundered on Sunday night. We put up for the night at a farmhouse, having gone not more than 15 miles owing to the condition of my feet. Here we got a bite of supper and were permitted to lie before the fire. My fellow prisoner took off his boots and was soon sound asleep. I took off nothing and, despite exhaustion, remained equally sound awake. One of the guards also removed his footgear and outer clothing, placed his weapons under his neck, and slept the sleep of innocence. The other sat in the chimney corner on watch. The house was a double log cabin, with an open space between the two parts, roofed over, a common type of habitation in that region. The room we were in had its entrance in this open space, the fireplace opposite at the end. Beside the door was a bed, occupied by the old man of the house and his wife. It was partly curtained off from the room. In an hour or two, the chap on watch began to yawn, and then to nod. Pretty soon, he stretched himself on the floor, facing us, pistol in hand. For a while, he supported himself on his elbow, then laid his head on his arm, blinking like an owl. I performed an occasional snore, watching him narrowly between my eyelashes from the shadow of my arm. The inevitable occurred. He slept, audibly. A half hour later I rose quietly to my feet, particularly careful not to disturb the black guard at my side, and moved as silently as possible to the door. Despite my care, the latch clicked. The old lady sat bolt upright in bed and stared at me. She was too late. I sprang through the door and struck out for the nearest point of woods in a direction previously selected, vaulting fences like an accomplished gymnast and followed by a multitude of dogs. It is said that the state of Alabama has more dogs than school children and that they cost more for their upkeep. The estimate of cost is probably too high. Looking backward as I ran, I saw and heard the place in a turmoil and uproar, and to my joy the old man, evidently oblivious to the facts of the situation, was lifting up his voice and calling his dogs. They were good dogs. They went back. Otherwise, the malicious old rascal would have had my skeleton. Again, the traditional bloodhound did not materialize. Other pursuit, 
"'There was no reason to fear. "'My foreign gentleman would occupy the attention of one of the soldiers, "'and in the darkness of the forest I could easily elude the other, "'or, if need be, get him at a disadvantage. "'In point of fact, there was no pursuit. "'I now took my course by the North Star, "'which I can never sufficiently bless, "'avoiding all roads and open places about houses, "'laboriously boring my way through forests, driving myself like a wedge into brush and bramble, swimming every stream I came to, some of them more than once, probably, and pulling myself out of the water by boughs and briars, whatever could be grasped. Let anyone try to go a little way across the most familiar country on a moonless night, and he will have an experience to remember. By dawn, I had probably not made three miles. My clothing and skin were alike in rags. During the day I was compelled to make wide detours to avoid even the fields, unless they were of corn, but in other respects the going was distinctly better. A light breakfast of raw sweet potatoes and persimmons cheered the inner man. A good part of the outer was decorating the several thorns, boughs, and sharp rocks along my sylvan wake. Late in the afternoon I found the river, at what point it was impossible to say. After a half hour's rest, concluding with a fervent prayer that I might go to the bottom, I swam across. Creeping up the bank and holding my course still northward through a dense undergrowth, I suddenly reeled into a dusty highway and saw a more heavenly vision than ever the eyes of a dying saint were blessed withal. Two patriots in blue, carrying a stolen pig, slung upon a pole. Late that evening, Colonel McConnell and his staff were chatting by a campfire in front of his headquarters. They were in a pleasant humor. Someone had just finished a funny story about a man cut in two by a cannon shot. Suddenly, something staggered in among them from the outer darkness and fell into the fire. Somebody dragged it out by what seemed to be a leg. They turned the animal on its back and examined it. They were no cowards. What is it, Cobb? said the chief, who had not taken the trouble to rise. I don't know, Colonel, but thank God it's dead. It was not. It was me. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We appreciate your sharing our show with others, and we appreciate reviews. And here's a few recent ones for you. The first one, five stars. Fantastic. I just started listening a few weeks ago, and I'm totally hooked. I started from the beginning, and I'm still only up to the 2019 stories. Can't wait to catch up and start to listen to the sister podcast. Down from Sharky18, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one. This podcast is a gift. The selection of stories is fantastic and very well recited. It's the perfect way to consume short stories and classics if you're on the go or strapped for time. I can't recommend it highly enough. I'm so glad a podcast like this exists. It really has been a gift for me to learn and enjoy. That one from D. 395836, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one. Thank you. Five stars. Thank you, John. Wonderful stories, and I really appreciate your introductions to each. Your stories are free. How wonderful is that? I was brought up to be grateful and to never look a gift horse in the choppers. All power to you. My best regards from down under. Uh, Margaret H. P.S. I'm new to your work. Just made it into your 2018 listings. If Henry Lawson's Loaded Dog isn't already among your gems, I can recommend it. One of his best and funniest. 
and thank you for including his drover's wife, one of my all-time favorite Aussie stories. Signed, M.H. That's from Tree Sheila, Apple Podcast, Australia. Thank you all so very much for taking the time to send me these reviews. And next week, we'll take a shot at Henry Lawson's Loaded Dog. Thank you for the ideas, M.H. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everybody stay safe and be sure to catch our other show, 1001 Greatest Love Stories, where you find a lot more women writers and the same great classic stories. Everyone take care.